Down South by Oliver Optic Chapter 18 The Excursion to Mandarin This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Stephen Simmons The band struck up a lively air as the boat started, and nothing could be more exhilarating than the strains of the music in the soft sunshine and mild, sweet air of that semi-tropic region. It was March, but the air was like summer. As soon as we had passed the first bend, the St. John's appeared more like a far-reaching lake than a stream. The river is from one to six miles wide below Palatka. The shores are never elevated, for there is not a bluff upon it that is more than thirty feet high, while generally the land is only a few feet above the level of the water. The highest elevation near the river hardly exceeds sixty feet. The country is almost wholly covered with woods as seen from the river. With the exception of a few villages, hardly a house can be seen from the passing steamer. One seems to be nearly alone with nature while voyaging on this broad tide. The trees are pines and magnolias, and now and then one sees a patch covered with jasmine, the vine of which climbs the trees and shrubs and blossoms there. There are plenty of flowers even in the early spring. Compared with Maine or Michigan, where I'd spent most of my life, it was fairyland in March. "'What are you doing here, Cornwood?' asked Colonel Ives as he entered the pilot house soon after we were under way. The party was somewhat larger than it had been the day before, and both the mayor and Colonel Ives with their families were on board. "'I am the pilot of the steamer for present,' replied Cornwood, as though he felt a little cut by the question." "'Isn't this a little derogatory to the profession?' laughed the colonel. "'I don't practice at the bar much. "'As you are aware, my health does not admit of the confinement,' the pilot explained. "'This is often the case with practitioners who don't have much to do in their profession. "'I have always had all I could do at the bar, but the open air and an active life agree best with me. It does with everybody who is short of cases. But he is a good pilot down the river, and I have no doubt he's just as good up the river, Colonel Ives, I interposed. His knowledge of his native state surprises us all. I was only bantering him, Captain, replied the passenger. I think he is a very good lawyer, too, though he did not have a good case this morning. When it comes to trial, I will show you that it is a better case than you think it is, replied Cornwood, with more spirit than he had before exhibited. Prisoners hang that hungry jurymen may dine, and you and the mayor were in a hurry to finish the case so that you could join this excursion. I was not in the case, added the colonel. But you prompted the magistrate to end it as soon as possible. What was the use of talking all day over the matter that was as plain as day? 
the rascal would have killed the engineer if the deck-hands hadn't interfered replied colonel ives the case might have been finished in ten minutes as well as in three-quarters of an hour i was willing the lawyers should fight it out between themselves and i left the pilot-house which owen and his ladies had not yet invaded i saw washburn on the top gallant forecastle looking at the scenery of the river and i joined him in this retired place i had not yet had an opportunity to ask him if he had found cobbington and i went to the forecastle for this purpose i found him replied the mate in a disgusted tone but i might as well not have found him why so i inquired rather amused by the manner of my friend since i came on board i have found out something more than i knew before last evening while you were ashore cornwood called a boat that was passing and sent a letter ashore by the boatman continued washburn as much dissatisfied as though he had been personally injured of course that note went to captain boomsby how do you know cornwood sent a letter on shore last night buck called the mate to the deck-hand who was on the duty forward on deck sir replied buck touching his cap to the mate you told me this morning when you set me ashore that the pilot sent a letter to the city last night by a boat he hailed yes sir three or four of us were on deck at the time if there should be any doubt about it replied the deck-hand no doubt at all about it did you notice the boatman that took the letter it was a blackie i've seen him dozen times about the steamer and on the wharf looking for jobs that the boat yard replied buck he was in the barge that brought off the passengers to-day all right buck and the deck-hand retired after i heard about this letter i didn't expect anything of cobbington if i found him did you find him i did and he was not out of his bed when i called for him he told me he had two water moccasins and one of them had got away while he had a room at captain boomsby's he did not know what became of him he had looked all about the house without being able to find him did he tell you what became of the other i asked him that question and he told me he had him still i asked him to let me see him but he refused in spite of all i could say to induce him to show him he said the snake was nailed up in a box with only some holes bore in it to admit air and he could not show the snake without taking off the cover of the box the moccasin was a dangerous fellow and he didn't want to run any risk with him he had left his last boarding-place because they killed a rattlesnake belonging to him. I asked him to show me the box, but he wouldn't even do that. He said it was all nonsense to show the box. You made up your mind that he had no moccasin, I added. No more than I had. On my way down from the house, I met his landlord coming home from the market. He asked me if I had found Cobbington, and I told him I had and then I informed him his lodger kept a live moccasin snake in his room. He was greatly astonished at what I told him, and declared that he wouldn't have a moccasin in his house for all the money there was in Jacksonville. The snake might get loose and bite his wife or one of his children. He intimated that he should hasten home and turn Cobbington out of his house. He would not have any man under his roof who would endanger the lives of his wife and children. 
That was bad for Cobbington, I replied with a smile. I told the landlord what his lodger said, that he had a moccasin nailed up in a box. He didn't care how he kept him. He would not have such a fellow about his house. I added that I did not believe Cobbington had any such snake in his room, though he insisted that he had. Then he either had a moccasin or he lied about it, and in either case he didn't want the fellow in his house. I came to the conclusion that the landlord wanted to turn out his lodger and only wished for a reasonable excuse of getting rid of him. I left him, and I suppose Cobbington had been turned out by this time. I shouldn't want a poisonous snake in my house. Nor a man who would lie without reasonable excuse, I added. The steamer went along at her usual speed. I returned to the pilot house, where by this time Owen had installed all the young ladies he could get into it. They were all full of fun and jollity and were enjoying the excursion to the utmost. As it seemed to me that they ought to do so, I found no occasion to complain. I could not help suspecting that the pilot might be guilty of some treachery after the events of the morning, and I deemed it advisable to have a close watch upon him. But he kept the steamer in the middle of the river, where I had been informed that there were no shoals and certainly no rocks, for not one could be found in this part of the state, even big enough to stone a stray dog. Mulberry Grove on the right, said Cornwood, who did not neglect his duties as guide while he attended to those of pilot. We could see little besides a long pier, though there was a glimpse to be obtained of a house through the vista of trees. Twenty minutes later we ran up to the pier at Mandarin, where the pilot made as handsome a landing as I ever saw in my life. It was half-past eleven when we had secured the steamer to the wharf. The band played some popular airs, and in a few minutes I judged that we had the entire population of the village on the wharf. It was a lively time for Mandarin, which is a remarkably quiet place. I believe I saw something like a store there, though I am not quite sure. About all the houses are on the bank of the river and were reached by a long, narrow footbridge built over the lagoon. From the main bridge, cross-bridges extended to each house. At twelve, the lunch was ready, and the excursionists went down into the cabin to attend to it, while the band on the hurricane deck continued to play. An oyster chowder and baked shad were the principal substantials of the lunch, and while they were served, Gopher was the greatest man on board. As soon as the lunch was disposed of and the cook had been sufficiently complimented, the party went on shore. Cornwood led the way over the long footbridge. "'There's an alligator in a wild state,' I said to Miss Margie, as I was walking with her and her father. "'I don't see anything,' she replied. "'Don't you see that splashing in the water with something black in the midst of it?' That is an alligator, the first one I ever saw, I added. It looked like a stick of wood. A little farther along, we saw one on a log. He was not more than three feet long. He attracted the attention of the party who had never seen one in his native element before, but we expected to see larger ones in the course of a week or two. Mrs. Stowe's cottage was one of the first we came to. It was a one-story wooden house with no pretense to elegance, 
an immense live-oak grew near it and covered the cottage with its branches around it was an orange grove on the trees of which many oranges still remained the distinguished lady was not at home and we did not see her we walked to the end of the bridge looking at the pretty dwellings on the shore and then went up to the land where we had quite a ramble but an hour enabled us to see all there was of the place and we embarked for the return before five o'clock we were in sight of jacksonville the pilot ran the boat as near the shore as it was safe to go and the barge i had engaged to be present transported the party to the shore mrs mitchell's house looked very pleasant from the outside but we were principally interested in the garden and the orange grove it was said that over five thousand oranges had been gathered from one of the trees we saw we examined a great variety of semi-tropical trees and shrubs such as lemon banana grapefruit and others i cannot remember the party dined on the river and landed at the market at six End of chapter eighteen